if we keep asking ourselves, what am I trying to build? This is a lump of clay. What are we trying to shape and how can we shape it so that this person is connected to the experience? Welcome back to the Parent School Podcast. This podcast features Polly Ely. She is an incredible marriage and family therapist. And this episode is all about lying, stealing, and cheating, something we have all done as children and experienced as parents. I have to tell you that this episode really changed the way I approach my kids when they have been caught in one of these indiscretions. I used to come down pretty hard and think that I had to really discipline. Polly has a really different approach. I think that you're going to find it very interesting. So here is Polly. Before we get started, I wanted to remind everybody that Polly is very real and she curses. So if you are listening with children or if you just don't like bad words, this one may not be for you. Here's Polly. I got to say, I think it's one of the places in our kids' development where we get most scared and we worry about their inherent character flaws when we're experiencing for the first time our kids lying, cheating, or stealing. It really scares the shit out of parents. And it really makes them feel like they've got to come down heavy like a hammer and fix this really quick. And I hope we can talk about a lot of things that will help people relax and treat the whole package of lying, cheating, and stealing as just an opportunity to mold a person with character. 100%. I remember stealing some things when I was a kid. I must have been five, but it's like seared into my memory. I remember exactly what it looked like. I can still remember what it tasted like. Wow. Can you share a bit about it? Yeah. So I stole a roll of Lifesavers from the local drugstore and I ate one. And I felt so guilty about it that I kind of left them in my pocket until they disintegrated. (laughs) Wow. You already had a pretty strong conscience at five years old, but you needed to have that experience to know what your conscience even felt like, huh? Yeah. Well, that wasn't the only thing. There were were other things I stole too. (laughs) Of course there were. There are for all people or for most, I should say. But I love that you're kicking it off with something that's so essential in parenting, which I've kind of recently coined as the Me Too parenting, that until we can find the place in our life where we struggled with that same kind of moment, that same kind of wanting for something and not knowing how to get it, so you take it. If you can't find that moment in your own own life, you really can't relate to your kid. Mm -hmm. And instead of relating and having some understanding of what's going on, we other them and judge them and we become the hammer instead of an ally who can help them build from this experience. So are you putting lying, stealing, and cheating together or do you want to break them out and talk about each one individually? Well, I think they should go under a common umbrella, which is the umbrella of integrity. We're learning how to not take things that don't belong to us. We're learning how to tell the truth in the face of disapproval, to possibly do poorly in a game or a test and face the disappointment of ourselves and our teacher and others. They all have sort of different consequences and they can be broken out, but they fall under a common umbrella, which is around integrity, learning how to do right by others and by ourselves, do the honest 
thing and risk all kinds of disappointment and disapproval when we do that right thing. So what ages are we talking about here? Or is what you're saying going to apply to children of all ages? (laughs) Yeah, including children of my age, 50 years old. I'm still working on being honest. So yeah, I would say we're starting at the moment we have the ability to twist the truth so that we can avoid getting in trouble with someone. For most kids, roughly two to two and a half years old, we'll start playing with the truth. You know, maybe we took a cookie and mom says, did you take a cookie? And we say no. And then we throw our sibling under the bus and say they took the cookie. And sometimes as early as two, we're sophisticated enough to know that we really don't want this person who we love and who we need to be disappointed in us and possibly reject us. So a lot is on the line when we've done wrong and we don't want to mess up with you at least inside of our nervous system, what's on the line is our connection. I belong to you. I cannot risk not belonging to you because I am absolutely and 100% dependent on you. So this is kind of where the beginning of the drive to lie lives. So if a parent catches their kid in a lie or cheating or stealing, what should we do? I mean, I'll just tell you about something that's actually happening in my family lately. I guess this is the pandemic version of stealing since my kids aren't going to the drugstore and they can't steal the lifesavers right now. Mm. (laughs) We have taken to locking up the electronic devices at night because they are entirely too appealing right now, especially in the age of COVID when there's not a lot to do. So we have a drawer with a lock and we lock it up. Well, the kids figured out where the key is and they woke up one morning at 5 a.m., took the key, they had figured out where it was the night before, and proceeded to take the devices. Uh, So when we woke up at somewhere at a more sane hour, we found them playing with their devices. So we felt that was stealing and lying, cheating. Yeah, it's getting pretty crafty. They were weighing being honest and true with you against this strong, strong desire to be entertained by a screen, right? Is it such an incredibly strong pull? As I listen about that, I'm having some compassion for the pull of that screen on them, not to excuse them in any way, but just simply to understand that at any moment when somebody lies, cheats, steals, or does something underhanded like that, They're in a dilemma. They're pulled between two things. There's something that they want and there's something that they know they really ought to do differently. Usually it's the want or the desire that's winning out in the moment. I guess I want to continue to weave this through our conversation is that that is present and happening for everyone all the time. And this is just the beginning of a journey of being at a crossroads where we have two competing desires. One is to do well and be approved of and do the right thing and feel good with what we're doing. And two is to fight our impulses or not follow them, especially when the impulse is supported by 16 million engineers who are trying to make that thing ever more illustrious and interesting. So if you had been my parenting coach There in that moment, what would you have advised me to do when I woke up and realized that they had taken the key and taken the devices? The first thing I want to say in answering this question is 
I see this as an opportunity. This is a young person who's like a ball of clay who has had a few opportunities to practice being integrous, but really not very many. And he'll need probably 2,000 opportunities to do the right thing. And he'll probably do the wrong thing a lot more than he'll do the right thing to begin with. So I just want to normalize that that's part of the shaping of a person and the shaping of integrity and character is that we actually experientially have to be faced with the choice over and over and over again to do the wrong thing that's out of integrity versus the thing that is in integrity. For me, you know, I have faced so many moments with my kids around lying, cheating, and stealing. And the one thing that I trained myself to say right out of the gate is, this is so important. I want this. And the reason is, if I think for a minute that my kids don't need hundreds and maybe thousands of opportunities to practice with building integrity, then I'm assuming they have it all already figured out by what, eight years old? That is absolutely impossible for anyone to figure out. And again, I'll keep making myself an example as a therapist who really prides myself on being honest and direct and full of integrity. And the thing I probably commit more of my energy to than anything, I struggle daily with being completely honest. So it's important for me to do two things. One, Welcome the moment. My kids need lots of practice with this. And so every time they screw up or take the road of going with what they want versus what is right, I see it as an opportunity for us to connect and to set what was wrong right. So that's my first piece. The second thing I'm going to do is, again, an inside job. It's part of a conversation I'm having with myself. And that is, can I find the me too in this moment? Let me try to remember back to being this age. Oh, wait, I can't even remember back because I didn't have iPads. Let's just try and remember the last time in my adult life, I really knew I should probably turn the iPad off, but I didn't because my drive to stay connected to it was so strong that I actually chose staying on it instead of maybe prioritizing the people in front of me. That is kind of an interesting start to the answer to your question, what do I do? And the first two things we talked about were really about a dialogue with yourself. One, I want this. I'm so glad it's happening. This is so important that we have thousands of moments or at least hundreds where we're practicing and looking at integrities. Number two, can I find the me too moment so that I'm not coming at them with judgment and shame, but I'm coming alongside them to say, yeah, I understand how hard it can be to be real and honest and true. And I'm in it with you, and we are going to work on this until we get it. This is singly the most important part of becoming a human being that you're going to get. And I, as your parent and your ally and your teacher, I'm going to help you set right anything that goes wrong in terms of your integrity. So again, I think one of the things that I notice is parents are often jumping to, well, what am I going to say to my kid and what am I going to do to respond? And if you could do Any most important thing, it would be how to center yourself and have a dialogue with yourself that's going to help you not be in fear, but be like, oh, I'm going to respond to this really important moment by showing them how to set this right. So I guess I've broken it into two parts. That first part is that parent part, really centering around compassion, me too, and 
welcoming the invitation to work on this. And then part two is how are we going to start relating with our kid? I think I'm being a little redundant, but I think it can't be said enough times because the knee jerk is to get scared when your kid lies. Some people will do a silent kind of rejection of you to teach you. Others will get very externalized and say things like, what's wrong with you? We don't lie in this house. We are not liars. You are a liar. And then they'll start assigning labels to kids which the moment a label is assigned, it's a very sticky thing and a very hard one to get off. So just as a, a note, liar, cheater, thief, these are really, really sticky labels. And it's so important that while we can label the behavior that that was lying behavior, that does not make you a liar very, very different way to discuss these behaviors. You know, you might say to your kid, when you broke into our little safe and took the iPad, that was something that is called stealing. It's where you just took something that didn't really belong to you in that moment. You're identifying the behavior as stealing, but you're not calling the child a thief. And I just can't impart that enough because labels stick in a way that are almost inextractable. I know because the first time I actually stole my own money, I had a savings account when I was like seven, a little cash register bank that was locked. And I stole it from myself. I broke it open and got the money out and I wasn't supposed to. And I spent it in town. And then when my parents asked where the money was, I said it got stolen. I didn't know where it went. So it was interesting that I not only stole, but I lied about my stealing, which usually these things come in pairs, right? We lie, we cheat, and we steal, usually all in succession. So I stole my little bank, and I was called a thief, and I was called a liar. And those titles, I plugged right into them, and I started to do more of them. I was like, well, if that's who I am, then I guess I'll do the thing. It's already been decided that I am those things. Like I made one mistake and now I am that. So I guess I don't have very much to lose. And that's sort of the downside of labels that once they've been given, they're A, really hard to get rid of and B, there's really not much to lose after they've been given. So I would start off by really talking about the behavior itself as a lie or, you know, a thing that you took that didn't belong to you or a time when you cheated but not use the labels so that kids can feel like you get a lot of chances to get this right. You don't get three and then you're out. You don't get one and then you're a thief. You get as many times as it takes for you to learn this really important thing that, frankly, so many adults don't have figured out. I mean, it's so easy to get on high and say, like, we don't lie in this house. Kids are smarter than that. They watch you lie. They listen to you lie. They watch you twist the truth all the time. I also start by asking parents to 
throw out the phrase, we don't lie in this house and say, you know, we strive to be honest and we all mess up on that sometimes. In fact, I struggled with it just last week when, you know, somebody asked me if I could go out and I wasn't in the mood and I didn't feel like saying I wasn't in the mood. So I made up a story about you being sick. Like that's how I struggle with it. So yeah, I do think it's important for us to find the place where we are working with our own integrity and we can come alongside our kids to talk about how it dogs us too. In my world and within the lab method, everything that goes off track is something that we work on setting back straight. And what we know for sure is that people learn when they are able to correct things, when they're able to set them right. They don't learn from punishment. It's part of why we've got a burdened penal system with overcrowded prisons is that the punishment itself is actually not in any way rehabilitative. It's the opportunity to set it correctly and then feel good about yourself once you've done so. That really does help a person re-identify themselves as someone who does right by the truth or right by other people. I once in my training as a therapist heard a quote by one of the leaders in our field, Eugene Jenlin. His quote was this, nothing that ever feels bad is the last step. And it helped me so much as a parent that if we're ending on a note where you feel bad about you and I feel bad about what you did, we're not done. We're done when you feel good about how you recovered, where you feel good about how you cleaned up, and I feel proud of you for doing so. That takes courage. That takes character. And I have example after example in my own life of my kids who struggled at various times with stealing and and lying and even cheating, where every single time they did one of those things, it was an opportunity for them to set it right. One of the things that we would do is I would ask them, did you have a little voice inside that talked to you at any point while you were going through that? When you were making the decision, let's say, to take the key and get the iPad, was there ever a little tiny voice, even a whisper of a voice, or maybe a loud one anywhere along the way that said, hold on, this is a bad idea? This is a really important question and very few people ever get asked it because that voice inside is your conscience. It's working on your behalf and trying to help you make good decisions. But when we're so consumed with punishing a person, we really never help them connect to that voice inside that they actually might have been able to hear. I can recall a time when I was, I think, just like you, I was five and I was playing at a girlfriend's house with my Barbies and I ran across one of the mom's diamond rings and thought, this is a primo crown for my Barbie. It fit the top of her head perfectly. And I did take it with me. But along the way, there were a couple places where I remember a little tiny voice inside saying, I don't know, Polly, Uh, I think this should stay here. And it was not until I really had to work on integrity issues in my 20s that I was able to recall back to all the little inner guidance that showed up for me. 
So I think it's a really important part of setting things right with our kids is starting with asking them, did you have any moment where you either hesitated or you paused or you heard a little voice that said, "Ah, I don't know if this is a good idea. Maybe you should slow down and think about it. It's so exciting what lives inside of people when we're not busy punishing them. And we say like, well, first of all, it sounds like you were really at a crossroads if you were talking to your kid. It sounds like on the one hand, you really wanted X. And on the other hand, you knew that there was a rule or an agreement to do Y. And you just want to start by helping them really feel the dilemma that they were in. I would rather they even help tell the story of their dilemma, like that they really, really wanted to have that $10 bill in your wallet. And they knew on the one hand, if they could take it, then they could get the thing that they really wanted. But on the other, they knew that if you found out, you'd be really, really, really disappointed in them. You want them to get good at telling the story of that little moment in which they made the choice. And once we've started telling a story together about it, then I'm going to say, was there any moment at all that you had like a little voice inside that said, hold up, don't do that. And then I'm going to be quiet because parents talk way too much in these moments. The only way our kids can actually begin to develop a relationship to their own integrity is if they get a chance to really reflect Most of the time, kids are so scared about being in trouble and feeling your disapproval that they really don't have enough spaciousness to reflect on what happened. You know, the subtlety of maybe did I have a voice that was talking to me from inside? If I'm scared that you're going to like ice me for the next three weeks and I'm in trouble and I'm going to be outside with a sandwich board hanging around my neck, I can't reflect on shit. But if my mom or dad says... I really get what it's like to feel like you want something and you don't know how to get it. I've been there. Can we take a little time to think together, think back to what happened for you when you took, let's say, the money out of my wallet? You're not in trouble right now. I just want to see if we can try to understand what happened for you. While the kid is going to have some consequences and they are going to be held accountable because that's so important, The first step is we really need to understand what happened for them. What motivated them? What kind of dilemma were they in? Was there a voice inside that said, hold on, you really shouldn't do this? And if we can give them enough space to answer some of those questions, they're going to start to piece together why they did this. But for listeners and maybe for you, I know for me, when I have come at my kids, like in a shaming, blaming kind of way, their nervous system basically goes into fight flight. There is one answer to every question. And that is this. I don't know. Why did you do this? I don't know. How can you not know? I don't know. They literally Mm. cannot think of what happen? Well, you must have an answer for this. You go into your room and think about this for a while, and then you can come out and tell me what happened. That kind of coming at a person and coming down on them will basically erase their ability to reflect on any of it. And honestly, I really think it's a missed opportunity. There's a lot to be gained in terms of reflecting on why did I do that? What was I afraid of? What was I motivated by? What did I stand to lose? Those kinds of things can only be mined if we've got somebody who's standing in front of us and says, hey, look, right now, you're not in crazy trouble. 
I'm here to help you set this right. But first we need to understand what happened. So let's work on it together. Let's try to understand. Let's just break it down. How's that sounding to you? I'm just thinking about what happens if a kid can't reflect or won't reflect. That's a great question, Rachel. Most kids are not able to reflect the first time you ask them to. Self-reflection is like a muscle, Mm. and the more you try it, the better you'll get at it. But it can take years to be somebody who's done wrong and then can look at that mistake or their fumble and say, I'm really trying to understand what was going on with me when I did that. I think on the one hand, I felt X, and on the other hand, I felt Y. And the reason I did it is Z. It's a very sophisticated thing to be able to do. And it is only doable if you've had multiple invitations to try it. Many, many, many. Now, if we, in this case of lying, cheating, and stealing, and building integrity, and building the ability to self-reflect, take the long view. Like in this moment, my kid just did something wrong. And I really want to kind of come down and teach him the quick lesson. I would say, take the long view, pull back. We're building a person, not just a person with integrity, but a person who can self-reflect after they fucked up. That is the future person I'm trying to raise. I would like them to not steal, lie, and cheat, but I'd also like them to be somebody who is accountable. So after they've done something that got them into hot water with someone else, they can reflect. Adults who can reflect generally come from parents who helped them reflect, or they come from being people who have been in psychotherapy, where self-reflection is really kind of the prime thing that we do. I mean, there are other means to self-reflect, you know, through meditation and self-inquiry and journaling and those kinds of things. But if there isn't enough quiet to listen to what's going on inside, and you just have a parent who's telling you things all the time, you'll never become somebody who can really reflect and then account for what happened. And it can't be just my story about what you did. It needs to be your story about what you did. We need them to have a coherent narrative about what the hell got them there. And that doesn't come from us saying, what are you doing? Why are you lying? That won't yield an answer. We have to back up and give them enough space to reflect. And that can take days. For me, as a parent, what I would do is I would turn off the spigot of all the good things that was flowing to them while they put together, with my help, a coherent narrative about what happened, why it was done, what the dilemma was, and whether or not they had any moments that said, hmm, you should stop, pause, think about this. That meant in those moments, I would hold on to the iPads and the phone and the things that were the goodies of their life that they get for being people of integrity. But when we are in a cleanup process, I'm going to gather up the goodies and I'm going to hold them while we put together a narrative of what happened. And you need to be a willing participant, willing to account for what motivated you and why you did that. I don't mean to sound like I'm being soft with anyone. I really want the person that I'm with to be able to look at their mess and speak about it. If I'm raising a human being who can make mistakes and face people and relate about their mistakes and do a self-inquiry, then I'm raising a really good person. Nothing else really matters unless they can look back at 
what they did wrong and talk about it with another person. So what about retribution? Is there a place for that in what you're uh-huh. saying? A hundred percent. In my world, the cleanup process and the process of setting things right is the most fundamental teaching part of the process. Once we have decided as a parent how we're going to hold this, and we've talked to the kid about putting together a coherent narrative about what drove them to do that, then we're going to start the cleanup process. And one might call that the retribution process. We're just setting things that went wrong right. And obviously, we have to set things right with the people around us. And that could look like I'm going to, A, return the item back to the way it was. I'm going to spend some time relating directly with the people that I tricked or I lied to by either speaking directly to them about my mistake and owning it or writing them a note. In almost all cases, I prioritize facing the person that you've either tricked or lied to, to the best of your ability. Some kids are just not there yet, and they do better with recording their apology or writing it. So now we're in the stage of like really setting things right and getting them back the way they were. Part of that is cleaning up with the people that we tricked, and part of that is putting things back the way they're supposed to be. So let's say, you know, in the case of my son who stole one of those geodes, I think his first time stealing out of a store was close to his last. I think maybe he did it twice, but he was really enamored with those geode rocks that you could crack open with a hammer and see crystals inside. Do you know those? I mean, yeah, they're pretty cool. They're pretty cool. And we were in a toy store and he put a couple of them in his pocket. And when we got home, we found him. I got myself centered and I knew where I was coming from. I was going to take the long view on this, that we would really do this right and make this a teaching experience, a learning experience. And then we put together his whole little accounting of what happened and what was happening inside of him. And then I asked him if he had any ideas for how to make this right. And this was another really neat place for self-reflection. He said, I think I could make it right by taking it back to the store and giving it to the person in charge. And he was seven years old. I was like, damn, that is a really brave answer to the question of how to make this right. And the fact that he came up with it himself was really striking to me. And I said, I think that's a wonderful idea. So he wrote a letter accounting for what he did and owning his decision to take it. And he took the letter and the rock with me back to the store and asked to speak with the manager. And he himself at seven years old handed over the rock, the letter, and then he spoke his words of accountability to the person. And I stood by quietly The manager asked him never to come back to the store. She thanked him for returning the item, and she let him know he was not welcome to come back. It was quite a moment for me as a parent because on the one hand, I was standing so proudly in the way he was facing his mistake and being so brave with a grown-up to bring the rock back. And yet also I had to give space for how that person wanted to handle it. And she said, you may not come back to our store. And that store was sort of forever, like made butterflies happen in everybody's stomach when we would pass that store because we knew we weren't allowed to go into it again. 
And that's actually what happened. And the world got to teach him a little bit there too. But I will say at the end, you know, going back to that phrase, nothing that feels bad is ever the last step. We left the place. I looked down and looked him in the eye and I said, I could never be more proud of you than I am right now. And it makes me tear up really to talk about it because he was so brave and he was cleaning up. And that was the piece that made him an extraordinary human being in that moment. It wasn't what he did. Initially, it was how he recovered and how he had so much integrity in that recovery. And that is what shaped him. And those many times that he got to correct with my warm regard, although I was very clear about the boundaries, very clear that we would stay with this until it was all cleaned up. I was always warm toward him as he went through the process and I hugged him and he hugged me so hard and we cried together and he was learning. It was live. And that was the positive last step of that experience that led him to begin to know himself as somebody who is brave and had integrity. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Thanks for listening. (laughs) So what about the concept of consequences? I know a lot of people might be thinking that. Honestly, the consequences are sort of built in. They're experiential. A, I took away the things that make his life sweet during that moment. Access to good stuff is not happening while we're in the cleanup process. You're not having play dates and you're setting things right. I'm just going to keep using personal examples. When my kid discovered that there was a little game on his phone that he could charge money for gems, he could buy gems without our knowing, somehow our credit card on iTunes was connected to it and he ran up $700 in charges for gems. Yep, that's happened to me too. Awesome. So I'm sure there's thousands of parents who will listen to this and nod in agreement to this. They've they've had this experience. But... I was clear with him that once we got a coherent narrative together of what actually happened, where he didn't feel like I was coming down on him, but we were putting the story together of what happened, he was going to have to make good on the $700 charges. And we worked out a schedule for him to work off the money at a rate of $10 an hour. He spent six months doing chores all weekend long, working off that money, and That sounds extreme, but I don't take this stuff lightly. I mean, it was essential that he understood he was spending someone else's money and he knew it. And how old was he? He was 12. And in all fairness, he was being tricked by iTunes and the software. But he had a voice inside along the way that said, you should probably check in with your parents about this. And he ignored it. And so he ran up tons of charges So, you know, after he was able to account for that and tell us about the voice inside that was tapping him on the shoulder and inviting him to be more honest that he ignored, we set up a plan for how to clean it up. And it started with me asking him, how can you possibly make this right? And he said, I could work off the money. And I said, I think that's a really good idea. And we set up a work furlough program on the weekends where he got paid invisibly or he paid back money by the hour. Literally, the family has such a strong recollection of six months of Cameron working in the yard, Cameron doing laundry, Cameron washing cars. I mean, it was a long ass six months for him and he paid off every single dime. 
And at the end of it, we had a ceremony to kind of like, just not a, you know, not like a kumbaya or anything, but we all just sort of marked the end of that. And we all admired him for the way that he cleaned it up and the way that he accounted for every last penny. I felt ultimately really proud of him. And the beautiful thing is I'm looking at a 22-year-old man now who has so many stories like this. And this person is just the most beautiful built-in integrity if he falters in his integrity, he's the first one to catch it. He's the first one to come to you. He's the first one to say, gosh, you know, I think I may have used your credit card inadvertently. I'd like to pay you back. Like he leans right into making sure that he's always in integrity with his money or other people's. It is not for naught that we do these things. It is so that they can have a lasting memory of setting things right and feeling good about how they did that. So my son was a little bit younger when this happened. He was six. He rang up $1,400 in gem charges. So what we did is I made him call Apple to reverse the charges. So he had to wait on hold and he had to talk to this woman who very sweetly laughed and says she hears this all the time. He had to say he was sorry and that he made a mistake. And they did reverse the charges. So that's what we did. That was a first offense. Beautiful. Wow. I love it. Like there's so many roads to Rome, but you asked him to be accountable. He'll never forget making that call, I'll bet you. And he certainly got an easy way out compared to what my poor kid had to do. And ultimately we did get the money back, but we decided that it was important that he felt the full sting of the choice to do that. So we were a little extra hard on him, but I like what you did. You know, you said, this might be fixable. Why don't you try to fix it? And let's start with a phone call. This is an opportunity to really work alongside our kid and say, hey, this is really important. I stand with you to fix this and I will not give up on you until it is fixed. We will take every last step together I love you and I believe that you can make this right is such a different experience than I'm mad at you and I'm going to ignore you, which ultimately just teaches a person just don't ever get caught. And the difference between don't ever get caught and if you mess up, fix it is just like those are two different people. How we evolve is really different when we've got somebody who's willing to walk through that hard part with us, that cleanup process, versus just punish us. So what happens when a parent finds out their child's been cheating in school? So again, I'm going to start with the conversation I'm having with myself, which is, A, did I ever have an experience of wanting to cheat in school? Is there any me too in this? So I'm going to start there so that I can cultivate some compassion and a sense of, you know, understanding at least from my own life experience, rather than come at them with judgment and shame and blame. I'm also going to say with myself, like, I'm really glad this is happening. This is an opportunity for us to shape this person, right? We're working on building character here. And that is built on thousands of opportunities to look inside ourselves and begin to understand what's motivating us and what's getting in the way when we decide to cheat. Again, that inside job is the first part of this for parents, but the second part is to begin to dialogue with our kids and say, you know, can we talk about what is motivating you? 
What are you afraid of? What are the things that compelled you to want to cheat? And really get into a dialogue that is hopefully not so shaming and blaming that they feel like there's space for them to reflect. So we are starting to put together again that coherent narrative about like, what do you think could be going on at school or within you about getting a bad grade that scares you so much you're willing to cheat? And what do you think the answer might be? Well, I could see either... I don't know, or I can see a teenager just completely stonewalling. I think stonewalling a parent is the first thing someone does when they're so defensive and so scared of being judged and rejected. That's a big first defense, and I understand where it comes from. A lot of kids will just freeze and say, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And that's the first step to getting to I do know. And What I recommend people check out is the invitation to say, I get that you don't know right now what was motivating you. I'm going to hold on to some of your stuff so that you get some quiet time to reflect. What do you think you were afraid of? Because obviously, you know, you're risking getting in trouble. There must have been something that scared you enough that you were motivated to cheat. What do you think it was? And my guess is that they're worried about not doing well enough and disappointing either you, the parent, or feeling like they're not keeping up and that feels scary. Each one of these kinds of conversations usually yields some really, really important deep information about what scares a kid. And when it comes to cheating, it's usually because they want to look good. So together, I might want to just ask my kid, do you think that some part of you was afraid that if you didn't get a certain grade, you wouldn't be good enough? Or do you think I would be mad with you? Or what do you think it was for you that made you want to do that? So give them a chance to run five miles in the I don't know shoes and then stay with them. Say, you'll get there. I I know the answer lives inside of you. It might take you a little while and I will hold on to these goodies of yours while we work on this and we'll work on it until we get it. But this isn't over until really you and I together are able to understand what got you here. And I'm not going to ignore you and I'm not going to be mad at you during this time, but I am going to insist that you are able to name what was it that you were afraid of so much that you were willing to cheat or who were you trying to impress or, you know, what was going on for you? Those kinds of questions will just help that muscle inside your kid develop so that they are someone who can self-reflect and look back on their own behavior which, again, above all else, is probably the thing that will make them the most extraordinary partner, friend, student, employee that they could be in their life. We're not raising them for this moment. We're raising them for the future. We're raising them to live a life that's successful. And I can't believe the success that people have in relationships who can look at their own face plants and say, I think this is what happened for me. The trouble is parents do too much of the talking and trying to teach too much when all the live examples are right in front of you. Like when you see your kid straddling two options where you can see them considering doing a wrong thing 
And then they do a recovery all on their own. Either they lean into doing the right thing or they do the wrong thing and then they quickly kind of do an autocorrect and fix it. Those little moments where they're guiding themselves in the right direction are huge for us to catch. And if we can catch them and say, gosh, I can totally imagine that you really wanted to take that cookie out of your sibling's hand, but I saw you start to do it and then I saw you stop. How did you do that? That was really amazing. Can we talk about it? Was there a little voice inside that said stop or slow down? There's so many moments in the day where somebody starts to head down one road and then they actually do an autocorrect on their own. Those are moments where their little intrinsic motivation to do right is already at work. Often parents will start talking at the kid at that moment, like, oh, it's a good thing you did that right. You corrected that, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, they start lecturing the kid. Instead, it's really time to ask, how did you do that? Wow, that was remarkable. You started to do X, but then you shifted to do Y, or you started to lie And then you were able to shift towards the truth, which is probably the hardest thing for anyone to do. Once you've traveled down the road of lying, most of us feel like we have to stay with that lie. But once in a while, we get brave enough to rewind and redo and start with the truth again. And that is a phenomenal skill. How did you do that? Even if they don't have an answer, it's you asking them a question that they get to kind of look inside for the answer. Mm -hmm. And if we can look for the moments where their integrity is shining through, that they are making good choices, those are the moments for us to really say, hold on, pause, I'm watching something really cool happen right now. And that is a moment where your kid gets to identify as somebody who does course correct and not because they are fearing being in trouble, but because they have their own little internal compass that's starting to really work for them. And you're watching that work and even willing to name it and celebrate it. Your kid is going to lie until they learn how to be honest. And the only way we can learn how to be honest is if the stakes aren't so high in the moment of our lying that we can't do a course correct. If somebody is flashing harsh eyes at me and telling me I better not lie, I'm going to do everything I can to protect my ass in that moment. And that means I am not under any circumstances going to rewind and start telling the truth. I'm going to die on my sword. I'm going to tell this lie and take it to my grave. But if as a parent, you can say to your kid, do you know that I struggle too with being honest almost every day in some small way or every week at least? Sometimes it's as simple as just not wanting to disappoint someone or not wanting them to disapprove of me. Because I want to look good, I will sometimes tell them something that isn't true, a lie. So I just want to tell you, sweetheart, as you just shared that story with me, it doesn't sound very true to me. And I totally understand why you might want to tell the story that way. However, if at any point you'd like to rewind and retell your story, like a more truthful version of it, I am right here to listen and you won't be in trouble, especially if you're able to tell a more truthful version Anytime you want in our family, you are always allowed to start over. You're always allowed to rewind and find a more truthful version of yourself. That is what you get for being 
and Ely, or that is what you get for being a Templeton, you know, naming our family's surnames here. That's part of the grace of being in our family is that you can find your way to the truth and we will celebrate that you got there. We won't punish you for not having started there. When these little moments happen, we are going to get very microscopic in the way we view them. And if we can pull back and say, what am I doing? What kind of adult am I raising? Literally this moment with this eight-year-old is me having an opportunity to raise an adult (laughs) and building something here. What is that I want them to get from it? Just having a sense of what am I trying to teach right now will really change how you approach this and know that it's not over until it feels good, not just for that person who did the infraction, but for the other people who were impacted by the negative behavior. So cleanup also goes with checking in with the people who are impacted to see if they feel whole, if they feel like they were treated with respect in the end. And it seems like What is key is for parents to stay calm, if possible. Well, theoretically, I mean, they may get really triggered and there may be a time where they need to go back and say, hey, I really lost my cool, but I'd like to restart with you. Let's look at what happened. So we're imperfect beings. When my kid ran up $700 in charges with iTunes, I lost my shit. I yelled. I threw stuff. I was out of my mind. And then I had some cleanup to do. I need to just circle back and say, gosh, that wasn't quite how I would have liked to have done that. I really got triggered. I got really, really scared. At the time that it happened, we were really financially in a pinch. So I was not just scared about what my kid had done. I was scared of actually having to pay for the charges. So I did get triggered. I chose to come back and account for what I think happened for me. And I shared it with my kid. And I said, I'd like to have a do-over. Can we start again? And at that moment, my kid got to hear my accountability. And that was modeling something. And then my kid was like, yeah, I I would love to start again. (laughs) Like, can we please? (laughs) You know, and there was ultimately a lot more space for us to really talk through and make a plan for how we were going to set things right. Inside of the mess, I had some of my own things to account for and to clean up. And I think that's a really important thing. Anytime we're finding ourselves triggered by any kind of behavior It will serve everybody for us to own our piece of the mess, a place where we came down like a hammer instead of coming alongside like an ally that says, hey, I'm really committed to getting this right with you. Let's make sure we do this really carefully. That's the greatest possible way to get through something with your kid. But is it going to happen every time? 100% not. (laughs) Like... We're going to deal with our reactivity and then we're going to try to reset and come back and go listen to the podcast about lying, cheating, and stealing, get centered and figure out what are we doing? What is my plan? Which is so important. You know, when anything like this happens, it's like, what am I doing? If I can pull back and figure out what I'm really working on with my kid and I can welcome the opportunity to do this experiential learning we're going to be golden, but I might lose my shit first. Thanks again for listening to the Parent School podcast. That was Polly Ely. My name is Rachel Templeton. I'm a parent. And I would love to know what you think about our show. 
you can visit parentschoolpodcast.com. That will take you to the lab method, which is Polly's practice. You can leave a question. You can let us know what you'd like us to cover. I hope everyone is doing okay in these really strange times. I hope the podcast helps. Take care.